I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase. There's nothing like snook hook sets at dawn or catching a tarpon in the moonlight. Find your next fishing trip made easy on fishingbooker.com and experience the magic of the Sunshine State or any other destination on your fishing bucket list. Book a blue water adventure in search of sailfish or go snapper fishing with the kids. With over 6,000 captains and trips to choose from, planning your next one just got a whole lot easier. Download the Fishing Booker app on the Google Play or App Store or visit them online at fishingbooker.com to book your trip today. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news, stories, and strategies. And now, your host, Mark Kenyon. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 113. Today in the show, Dan and I are discussing the most important summer preparations you and we need to take care of before hunting season arrives. Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. Today it's just Dan and I and we're going to be chatting about summer deer hunting preparations. We're going to talk through what Dan and I are currently working on as well as some additional recommendations for you know all the different things that you and we should be thinking about and working on during these summer months leading up to hunting season. So that's the plan for the next hour or two. Dan, what do you think about that? Hey, let's talk about summer prep. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, what beginning of August, so yep. hopefully most of us have already been working on things, but if not, this is like that final month to really get things done. I don't know about you, but I always try, you know, with a October 1st opener in Michigan, my goal has always to have everything done by the end of August so that all September the property is untouched is kind of the way I approach it. Yep. Um so that means for me, the next 30 days are going to be super busy. Yep. And that exact, that is exactly what I, I call September my layoff period. And I don't, I try not to go into the timber, um, to do anything except maybe check a trail camera if I'm in the area, but I try to try to lay off the property as much as possible. Yeah. It can be, it can be tough, right? I mean, that is a time right. when we're, we're so excited to get out there and see what's moving around and try to put together a plan. But I really think it's important if you can to let that property sit hunter and, you know, hunting pressure free for a while. Right. Um, I think it makes a big difference. You know, even in a perfect world, you would leave it sitting for months. I mean, some people get all their work done in May or June or July and let it sit for a while. I, I've never been able to be that good, but yeah, I'm trying to get better. Well, I tell you what, I, I, I tell you, you know, one, one way to lay off your 
uh, hunting property for an entire month is have two children. <laughs> and I thought, then I thought that might be where this is going. <laughs> <laughs> they, uh, they're, uh, they're very good at uh, keeping you busy and not on whitetail hunting related, uh, you know, activities. Dude, there's always a silver lining, right? <laughs> That's right. This is this is so. This is the good thing. The family helps you from messing yourself up. Keeps you right. from messing yourself up. Exactly. You know, they they. I like how I like how we're turning this into a positive, right? They help me not check my trail cameras as much as I want to. They help they, you not overhunt tree stands. Exactly. They help me uh, stay out of good spots until I actually, you know, get vacation time for the rut because I, I literally can't hunt the property. So. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, honey. Uh, <laughs> man, I'm sorry. <laughs> Oh, it's cool. It, it, you know, it works itself out and, you know, I got some properties, uh, I got some, uh, side properties. I'll put it to you that way, uh, that I'm going to be able to base, you know, this year, um, so far on the trail cameras, I haven't had anything, what I would consider a shooter, but lots of does. And, uh, that's going to be my mess around property that if I want to go sit in a tree stand, I'm not too worried about messing anything up. No, is this a, a property I don't know about yet? This is a new, oh, new one? No, this is uh, one that I only hunted one time last year, gotcha. and uh, I wasn't able to uh, spend a lot of time on it But uh, because I was on my buddies chasing that bigger buck. But uh, this is just a property uh, in, close to my house. It's only within like a 10-minute drive from my house, nice. and uh, I got access to it. I got some trail cameras up right now, and I haven't been there in going on three weeks now, so I'm gonna have to try to make a trip out there this weekend to go and uh, check some trail cameras again. Nice. So, okay, we've got we have I don't know, like 27 days or something left in the month, give or take. What percent of the way are you done with your summer deer work? If you had to well, uh, guess, I mean, less than or probably 30. Really. Yeah, because here's what I need. Here's what I need to do before the season even starts. Right. And this is just a high level list. Right. right? And so and like we said, this is before September. So basically, you've right. got three and a half weeks, right? Three and a half weeks. My goal is to get all this stuff done before September 1st. Um, set up one, two, three, four, five, six tree stands. Uh, uh, and then t later on in the month. While I'm doing that, I'm also going to transition my trail cameras off of the mineral stations to the pinch points, travel corridors, and um, what I think are going to be uh, food sources. And you got three and a half weeks to do it. Yep. And, uh, oh, and I have to uh, finish the food plot that yeah. I started. Yeah. So, okay. So that's what you have to do. Yep, what I, like I have. Yourself. Yep. So I need to set slash move two tree stands. Okay. I need to check all of my current stands up in Michigan, uh, just safety check them and check shooting lanes for all of them. I need to put in two and a half food plots, one of which is an absolute jungle mess right now that things didn't go as they were as they were supposed to while I was gone. So now I have to completely redo a food plot essentially. Yeah. Um, I have to 
set up new trail cameras because I just checked cameras and I now I have to move them and reset them. Yep. Uh, and I want to get permission on a couple more pieces here in Michigan because I, since I'm going to be hunting in Montana in September, I'm not going to be doing a big trip during the rut other than Ohio. So I'm going to spend more time in Michigan. So I want some more spots here. So gotcha. those are my big projects here for the next three weeks. Um, oh, and I want to place some scrape, some fake scrape trees. I'm going to put in oh. some um, some of my own customized where I want them scrape sets. Yep. Um, and I think that's it for me. Oh, and then I'm also going to go to Ohio, and we've already done all of our stand work down there. We checked and cleared out shooting lanes this spring, so I think I'm all set there. I just need to check cameras and move them to pre-hunting season spots you know, like you said i move them off like the mineral stations or the food source and then put them on areas where i might be getting pictures leading into october right um so those are the things we're working on so here's what i want to do dan all right let's go through those lists of the things all the things we have to do and let's talk about that in detail and lay out okay here's specifically what i'm doing in regards to this tree stand here's why i'm doing it here's how i'm doing it um, same thing for a bunch of these categories because, you know, as we were talking about a minute ago off air, we've never really done a podcast episode where we went through in detail all the different summer projects that we are working on and that, you know, we'd probably recommend most people do as they prepare for the season. Um, and then there's a list, a handful of other things I thought we could talk about that we haven't mentioned right now, but other things that we're usually doing throughout the summer too. Um, that's kind of how I thought we could spend the next hour or two. Do you think that's a solid idea. I think that's a solid idea. Hey, how about we try to do it in chronological order of what needs to do- be done first thing? Like the very first thing that you're going to do, the very first thing that I'm going to do. That sound good? I like it. All right. I'll let you start. All right. But real quick before we do that, we need to pause briefly for our Sitka story of the week. And today that story comes from a Sitka Gear employee, Garrett Long. And his story today is about a very special whitetail hunt, not because of a huge deer or some epic encounter, but because of something much more powerful, a shared experience with a loved one. So this last year, probably the, my favorite memory, whitetail, was I got to sit in the stand with my wife for the first time. And I didn't really know how she was going to like tree stand hunting. It's not for everybody. You know, we can't talk the whole time. We can't walk. And uh, we saw some deer coming in, and, and this stand that we're sitting in, it's, it's not a double stand, so she's about five feet away from me, so I still can't really talk to her. And uh, there's a pretty nice buck in there. And, and as they're moving towards us, they kind of went into a, a smaller field behind some trees. We couldn't see them anymore. And at this point, I'm thinking, gosh, is this as exciting for her as it is for me? I'm the one holding the bow. You know, I, I turned around to kind of look at her and be like, I don't know where they went. And her eyes got all big. And, and I turned around, and there was that deer came out at about 20 yards. And uh, we were lucky enough to get him. But after I shot, you know, of course, I'm shaking as always. I can't help it. I, you know, I probably shot 20 deer out of a tree stand and I shake like a leaf every time. And, uh, but I look around and, and she's holding the tree with these great big eyes. And, you know, she's kind of shaking a little bit and looking at me. And, and, uh, that was a big deal to me. Um, because as you know, experiences are never 
as good if you can't share them. And uh, that was that was a big thing, knowing that from now on, you know, having your wife being your hunting partner and having that much excitement, that's a big deal. That is a big deal. And this was a Sitka story. In fact, if you give Sitka Gear a call, you might get to chat with Garrett yourself as he works in their customer service department. And if you'd like to learn more about Sitka Gear products, you can visit sitkagear.com. And now, let's get back to the show and discussing our summer prep work. All right, so let's see. The first thing I have to deal with right now is trail cameras, um, simply because that's something that, you know, since I've been gone the last two months, I haven't been able to mess with, but now I want to try to get back on the horse with that ASAP. So, yeah, I haven't been able to share any trail camera stories at all, all year yet. Um, so I finally have a trail camera check to share. Nice. So anything good? So I got back home to Michigan yesterday, and of course, like the first thing I did after dropping off my bags was tell the wife, "Hey, honey, I'm gonna go check cameras." <laughs> <laughs> so I run out to my main Michigan property, and a couple things suck. First, I've got this camera on the other side of a creek, and the bridge washed away. So oh I had to just kind of wade across the creek over my boots. Um, Number two, I get to this set, and what I decided on this property was that there's really only one spot that I've consistently always gotten, like, great summer pictures. So in the past, I usually had, like, two or three cameras spread out across the area, but this year I was like, you know what, I just want to get pictures in this one spot while I'm gone, and I just want to make sure that it turns out. I don't want to have just one camera here and have it screw up. So I actually set two cameras pointing at the same location just from different angles, with hopes that if one of them screwed up, at least I get some shots on the other one. So I did that in May. You know, I set these up on the corner of a bean field. That was what an air field that was going to be a bean field. And um, had them in this kind of inside corner where the deer always come out of this really thick bedding area and come out to feed in this bean field. And I cleared all the weeds really, really good, trimmed everything all the way down to the ground, set these things up at angles that should be great. Well, I get back, check those cameras, one of the cameras um, was on like a, oh, you know, a camera stand type deal. Right. And it was the single post one. It wasn't one of the stick and picks that have like the three prongs, but this is just right. one, of the, one of the single prongers. And something hit it and knocked it over sideways sort of. Yeah. So, you know, I had like my, my pictures were all at like a 45 degree angle. And they also then, because of that, were behind weeds. So... Yeah. That was frustrating. And then the second camera, that was stood up upright just fine with a normal stick and pick. But despite all of my trimming, when you leave something for two months, stuff grows. And it still overgrew my camera, unfortunately. I was hoping that it wouldn't, but it did. So basically, between both cameras, I have, like, nothing usable from July. Um, no, Not a single picture of a buck in July. One of the cameras did take some pictures, but they are all just does. Right. I did get pictures in June of some dinks and the one bright spot is i do have one shooter on my michigan property so i'm excited about that and i don't think i recognize him i think he's a new buck all right so remind us what a michigan shooter is yeah for me a michigan shooter is well at least three this year i'm kind of up in the game to probably four um it'll be we'll see but i'm i really do want to try to shoot a four-year-old here this coming year um but you know anything over like 125 that's three or four in Michigan is, is going to get an arrow from me. Okay. This buck, um, 
the last picture I have of him is June 19th. So, you know, still pretty early growth. But yeah. when I look at what he looked like on June 19th, and do you remember that buck leaner that I was yep. after a couple of years ago? He was yep. like probably pushing 140 here in Michigan as a four-year-old a couple of years ago. Okay. This buck looks just like that buck, except for his size, even on like June 12th, is bigger than what leaner was on July 4th in 2013. I was comparing pictures. So given that, given that he's way now all deer grow their antlers at slightly different paces, you know, so I could be completely wrong on this, but given the size of antlers that he had in the 12th and the 19th, I think he should be like, I don't know, 140s. I would hope. I think, yeah. I mean, I would say 130s at a minimum. And you said he's a 10 pointer. He looks like he's going to be a 10 pointer. Okay. Um, But given what he looked like in early June, if he grows in July the way that a lot of these bucks seem to, he should be pretty darn nice. Yeah. Um, so I'm excited about that. I don't think it's a buck I know, like I said. So uh, new, new, interesting deer here, and you never know. He might not stick around for a hunting season, but um, that's the one thing I'm excited about. So now I just have to go out there and reposition these cameras, re, you know, get everything up and going with batteries and all that. Um so that's the one. That's actually what I'm going to do probably in the next day or two is just get those things set up, put a couple more cameras out, try to blanket these Michigan properties, um, and then after that's tree stands. Yeah. Do you want to talk about tree stands? Do you want to talk about your tree stand projects first? Well, I tell you, before I even do any of that, I got to finish a food plot, Ooh, and yeah. uh, so, so I had um, my buddy had this old. It's the previous owner had a garden there and this is where i missed my big buck last year all right mm-hmm. yep. so in this little area by this this gardening shed so what we did was we ripped out this fence that enclosed this garden um i left two wooden poles up there that i'm going to turn into um that there was a gate that was hung on these poles i'm going to turn that into a horizontal rub nice and then i sprayed already I sprayed the uh, yesterday and the day before so I guess Monday and Tuesday and then um, what else did I do what else did I do and, and uh, trimmed some overhanging branches so more Sun could get to the plot to this little area that we that we did now so I called a, a rental place to see if they had a tiller that could attack or uh, uh, attached to my buddy's oh, uh, his Kubota tractor that he's got and uh, he's like, yeah, that'll work, that'll work, that'll work. And I'm like, are you sure? He's like, yeah. So I called a day, talked with a different guy, and uh, said I want to rent it. And he's like, uh, well, what do you got for a tractor? And I told him. He's like, that won't fit. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, well, the other guy told me for sure. He's like, all right, well, let's go online. So we went online. He confirmed it. It's not going to work. So now I'm in a scramble now to try and somebody in – where I live in Eastern Iowa who has like a plot master or something that can break the ground up, turn Mm -hmm. the dirt over and, uh, um, try to get that done before, you know, within the next couple weeks, cause I've already sprayed. I'd like to get it down. I bought lime and, uh, I need to uh, throw some of that out. Nice. So dude, you got to get your buddy, John, doesn't he have some connections with the, that kind of implement type stuff? Yeah, he does, but he lives like an hour and a half, two hours away from me. I'll buy him a case of beer. <laughs> <laughs> he can't drink beer anymore. Funny Ooh. long story. I'll tell you later. <laughs> I just saw him this past week too. 
know. That's what he said. He was hanging out in Bozeman. That's right. Um, well, that's exciting, though, man. Your first food plot. So have you decided what you're going to plant there? I think you have, right? Yeah, I got uh, I got that Whitetail Institute brassicas I think you sent me. Yeah. But I think I'm going to mix with it. I, I was told that I should mix clover in with it, too. It's not a bad idea. So clover will grow. It'll give some. It'll give them something to come into, um, you know, mid October when I start hunting it, and then, you know, I, I still have to put a. I'm gonna brush in a ground blind, um, where I can shoot this entire area. And uh, I'm pretty. You know, now that the grass is starting to die, and I I can s- visualize what it's gonna look like. It's. Uh, I'm getting excited about it. I bet. Yeah. I uh, I can definitely relate to that. Now let me offer you. Uh uh an idea okay the one thing i would caution about mixing clover with brassicas is that brassicas are really big and leafy and they grow and establish really fast right so what could happen is if you plant brassicas the way you would typically plant them um those things are going to leaf over and cover up that clover like immediately right the clover is going to get no sun i'm going to split it in half there you go that's what i was going to say I got, uh, I'm going to probably split it in half and it's, it's probably, I mean, it's probably a half acre in total of maybe even, maybe a little less, but it's a decent size food plot. And, uh, I think the majority of it will probably go into brassicas just so, you know, they don't eat it right away and overgraze it because there is quite a few deer in that area. Yeah. Um, and I don't want that to happen. So I want to be there when that first frost hits you know the next couple of days they start to find it and they're like okay this is the this is the food plot now you know what Dude, i mean and they're gonna put the feedback on and you're gonna oh, have yeah. deer piling into that thing right and then i you know that's that same tree stand area though you know i think i talked to you about it uh either in an earlier episode or over the phone is where that, that wind, tricky wind yeah, yeah the wind shifts back and forth the entire hunt so that's why i think i need to get a ground blind in there to help at least control that a little bit yeah, are you thinking like just like a cloth pop-up blind? Are you building like a box blind or something? Or no, it'll be uh, it'll be. I think I don't even know what brand it is, but just like your regular pop-up yeah. blind. Yeah. So, oh, that's exciting! I'll tell you what. There's, you know, like we've talked about. I think last episode, the episode before, you know, it, it's so cool to be able to hunt properties where you just need to figure out the deer, and then it's really cool to also have the opportunity to do habitat improvements and like be able to manipulate things and see how the deer react to that. Um, both are really cool, but there is a something special about being able to do this type of thing. Like the first time you sit that food plot, I tell you what, the first time you sit there and you watch deer feed out, it'll just be the coolest thing. Like watching the deer, enjoy that food plot, use it. Um, and you know, whether or not you see or kill any, a buck on it, you know, just seeing deer and animals out there is very, very like fulfilling. Right. Um, I, I, I will shoot the very first doe that comes onto that food plot that when I hunt it, <laughs> you just want to make it happen, huh? I, I, well, it's, it's just something cool because I put in a lot of work, a lot of energy and, uh, no one really told me how expensive food plots are <laughs> and I'm doing it by hand, right? All yeah. this stuff I'm doing by hand. So what are your uh, costs? Just the fertilizer or lime well, and stuff? The fertilizer, the, it, I spent, 60 bucks on uh weed killer because yeah yeah weed killed less cost yep roundup um the lime was cheap you know i had i got uh 
120 pounds for like 10 bucks. But the fertilizer is going to be like 45 to 45 to 60 bucks on top of that. That's a hundred, you know, that's a, so that's a total of, you know, I, I don't even, I can't do math. Never too that's over, <laughs> yeah. over, that's going to be over $150, you know? And then by the time I, I find something to rent, that's going to tear this dirt up. That's going to be an, another hundred, you know, so that's 300, that's three hundred dollars, four hundred dollars, maybe on a on a small plot, and I got the seed for free, right? Yeah. So, um, and then the labor that's involved in it. I mean, that's four hundred fifty bucks. That's a that's an elk tag, you know. That's a that's a tag in a different state. That's you know, that's a lot of that's a you could do a lot of things. But so when that first deer, I'm I'm cashing in basically <laughs> when that first doe. I understand. Oh. I understand the the desire to do that. That's for sure. <laughs> it's worth it, man. It's worth it. That's right. Um, although, I gotta say, when you when you talk when you talk about that, look at someone like uh, Lee and Tiffany who have like five hundred acres of food plots. Can you imagine the cost they put into that? Oh, uh, the what cost? Well, they probably get all that for free. So, I, I hope they do because if not, yeah. that's some serious money. <laughs> right, but there are guys out there who yeah put in a ton of food plots and they don't get the disc they don't get the the industry discounts yeah it definitely helps <laughs> have so, i ever talked about the bell curve of hunting before you you've mentioned it before but enlighten us <laughs> it's this it's this funny thing i discovered at one point um you know when you first start hunting right you are just getting into it you just have some random stuff. You're Dan Johnson. You wear like a hooded sweatshirt, jeans, and like you throw a spear, that kind of thing. Right. Yep. Um, so you're not spending a lot of money yet. Then you get into it a little bit more. You're moving up the bell curve. You know what a bell curve looks like, right? Right. It's just like, uh, you know, half an egg going up, up, up like a roller coaster, and then it comes back down. So you're moving up into the right. As you right. go up into the right, you know, on the, on the, Gosh, what's that? The x-axis, if you're thinking of a chart, the x-axis is like how into hunting you are. And the y-axis, the up and down axis, that's how much money you spend on hunting. So as you go more into being more into hunting, now you want a new bow, you want new tree stands, you want new camouflage, so now you're spending more and more money. This this whole thing came around because this is what I tried to tell my wife when I was spending so much money on hunting. I was like, honey, honey, the bell curve of hunting, I'm working my way up. So as you continue getting more and more into hunting, you spend more and more money until you reach this point where some company is willing to give you something for free. Right. And then your costs go down a little bit. Right. And then as you continue to get more and more honey, you get a little bit more free stuff and then your costs start going down. Right. So if anyone ever complains about how much money they're spending on hunting or their wives are telling them that, you just can tell them, I'm moving on the bell curve. Someday it'll get better. <laughs> That's been what what I've tried to convince my wife of at least. So is she what she, what she say? Did she just ignore you? She basically yeah ignores me, shakes her head, tells me I'm an idiot. Right. So, but what I would like to know is with that bell curve, does the bell you know the further the more you get into hunting, does your success rate for harvest actually go up with that? That's a great question. I say it probably varies for everyone. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it. I don't know if it necessarily does or not. No, if you listen to this podcast, hopefully it does. <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, we are that uh, inflection point. But uh, ah, what the heck was I about? There's something I was going to talk about before I got sidetracked with my stupid bell curve. 
Um, I don't even know. Deer hunting? Yeah, it was about deer hunting. But yeah. food plots. We talked about food plots. Oh, you know, I won't get into the details of what I need to do on mine still, but it's just weed issues is my big thing. So um, you got a mow and spray yet? Yeah, well, you know, so I've got these two big food plots on my main Michigan property, but they're in annuals, so I have to replant them every late summer. So what that meant for me this spring was I sprayed everything so that it would be dead. And then um, I was trying to get someone to come again in July or so or late June or July while I was gone, spray it all a second time so that it was still dead. So anything new that grew up while I was gone would be dead. I'd be able to come back here in August. When I got here, disc it up myself, plant, and be a piece of cake. Um, Well, I first tried to hire someone to do it while I was gone. They said they couldn't do it kind of last minute, so I found a friend to help out. Really, really appreciate him helping me out and spraying stuff, but he missed a very substantial portion of one of the food plots. I, I, I haven't even talked to him about it yet, so I don't know if he just didn't realize that was part of the food plot or what. Um, but like two thirds of my main food plot, like where I killed my buck last year, that is like five feet tall weeds, like an acre and a half. Yeah. So like I walked in there yesterday and like almost wanted to cry. <laughs> right. So, so yeah. if this guy is listening to the podcast right now, <laughs> do not answer your phone when Mark Kenyon yeah. calls. No, I'll just uh, curse him out once and that'll be it. <laughs> <laughs> no, I really appreciate him helping me at all. But um, but yeah, so now I've got to find someone who has a mower that can come and mow it all down. And then i got to get rid of all that extra vegetation, spray it all again, and then go through the whole process. So, you know, it's a process. That's right. But when are, when are, what's a date that you're looking to have your seed in the ground and just wait for the rain and it's time to grow? So all my planting dates revolve around the rain. So I wait until I see a good day of rain or more, hopefully a couple of days of rain. But I will I only plant like the night before rain. You always want that rain to come as soon as possible after you plant. So ideally, though, I'd like to plant my brassicas in like mid Mid uh, August, okay, would be ideal, and then my oats because I'm doing half oats, half brassicas. Those will be probably that last week in August. So gotcha. perfect world. I'd like my brassicas in the ground by like August 15th, and my oats in the ground by like August 28th or something. Okay. So if the weather cooperates, that's what I'll be doing. I got some time then. Yeah, yeah, you got some time. Um, it can't hurt, you know, to get in a little earlier. It wouldn't be the end of the world if it was a little later, but just somewhere in that time frame. Um, the best I've gotten them in, you know, like August 10th or something like that. And they're just big and lush and awesome by the time October 1st rolls around. Um, that's, that's pretty ideal. Cause then it's got a lot of time to grow those tubers. You know, if you've got some radishes or turnips or anything in there in your mix, which, um, which the winter greens do have turnips and stuff in there. If you get those in a little bit earlier, you're going to have more chance for those bulbs to grow. So then not only are they eating the leaves up top above the surface, but then later in the year, they're also digging up the ground and eating the actual tubers and stuff underneath. So right. added food. So Amen. Tr- so tree stands. I want to, I want to move to tree stands now um, and talk through specifically what we're doing in, in our case and what kinds of things we should be thinking about this time of year when it comes to summer deer stand prep because i think lots of people are doing that right now um everyone's getting out there hanging their stands figuring out where they're gonna be hunting um so you said you have six stands still to hang yeah um and a majority of them are going to be easy i'd say four of them are going to be traditional 
pinch point rut spots where I have several years worth of trim. I just need to go hang the stand up and, um, you know, see if anything's fallen in the shooting lanes. Pretty simple. Uh, the other two are adjust, you know, micromanaged tree stand locations where I need to move it because I noticed the previous year that the movement was coming. You know, I feel that I would have a better chance of intercepting a, a you know, a cruising buck or um, a buck with, you know, by moving the tree stand, you know, 10 yards or whatnot. And then the other one is uh, a, a completely new area that um, I, I noticed last year that they were this a, a buck and a doe made a mistake mid season last year. And I saw them come out of this really steep ravine that I didn't think a lot of deer were going to, were traveling. And, uh, so I put a trail camera up, got a lot of activity and, uh, I'm going to be, uh, setting up a tree stand, um, uh, in that location, which is going to be a son of a gun. So it sounds like all the stands you're hanging now are based off of previous year observations. Is that right? Uh, a majority, the, the stuff that I'm hanging right now, yes. Yeah. And then I have a running gun set that, you know, is, is strictly for my early season where, you know, Hey, I want to go hunt a, you know, a, you know, a trail leading to a food source. I'm going to, you know, I'll just do a quick setup right there. Or if I'm going to, you know, hunt a, a different piece of property around here. So, yeah. You know what? I think something you mentioned there, and we talked about this on some past episode, it kind of rings a bell for me. Um, but I want to touch on it again is those tweaks. I think that's like one of the biggest hurdles to get from being just like an average deer hunter who sees some nice deer every once in a while to being that guy or girl that consistently kills the mature buck is being willing, to, well, being A, noticing when you need to make a small change. And then B, and I think this is the toughest part, actually doing it. Um, you know, I struggle with this sometimes where like I'm like, ah, I know I really should be in that tree instead of this tree. But sometimes, you know, you get lazy and you're like, well, the tr I'm already here. I can see the deer. Why do I really need to make a five-yard move or something? But, right. right? I mean, it's the small little things like that that make the big difference. And it's, a, it's definitely a thought process, right? You have to be able to think a certain way. You can't think like – Oh, he's out of my shooting lane. You have to think why I have to be over there. Yeah, and, and then why is he out of my shooting lane too? Exactly. You know? Why do you need to move your uh, stand to where he's going or where he's coming from, or just straight up closer to the encounter that you had? So I'm going to be moving this one. Uh, this one. Uh, it's not really a funnel, but it's. Uh, it's a pinch point. It's kind of a pinch point. It's off of a pinch point a ways. I got a tree stand. I'm literally moving it to the next tree this year because <laughs> I had all these bucks were cruising, not necessarily. They were at the long end of my shooting lane and I need, I just feel more comfortable instead of taking a 35 yard shot. I want to take a 25 yard shot. Yeah. And, and that's, it's those small little adjustments that, yep. you know, increasing your, decreasing that range that could make all the difference this season and then the the worst feeling in the world is if you think that in your head you're like ah, i really should do this i know i should move this for this reason and that reason but something happens or you just get lazy and you don't do it and then you're sitting in that tree stand next year or this coming fall 
and that deer comes through just like you thought he would, but now he's you know out of your range because you didn't move. Like how crappy is that feeling? Right. And I don't know how many guys, either email or Facebook, they they send me emails and they're like, "Hey Dan, I see all these deer working right here. Here's my tree stand. What should I do? Uh, move your tree stand? <laughs> I mean, it's it's it can be that simple. There's well one, one alternative." And I think you're right. I mean, option number one is always adjust your tree stand location to the movement. But sometimes there are situations where you can't for some reason. Or maybe your tree is in just the perfect spot for access or exit or whatever. Sometimes, you know, you can manipulate the deer to move closer to you. And that's another great summer deer project too, you know. If there's a situation like that where you want to be in this tree for some reason, you're very strongly set on that but the deer are passing at 35 and you want them at 25, you know, and we've talked about this before too, you know, lay down a couple trees over that one trail and divert them to the trail that's 10 yards closer to you. Or if they cross the fence in a couple spots in front of you, block the fence that's 40 yards away and open it up at 15. Um, those little manipulations, all these little tweaks, like at this time in the summer, I think, if you're the guy or girl who has, you know, your property already set, you've hunted it for years and years, now is when you want to be making the tiny little tweaks that, you know, really put you in the position for all the variables to be as lined up as possible. Those little those little adjustments that, you know, I really try to sit down this time of year and think they're okay. This tree stands in a great spot. I've had success in the past, but what tiny thing could I could I do to make it a little better, you know? Maybe it's that little movement, maybe it's, you know, you know, like I said, laying a tree down. Maybe it's one more branch that needs to be cut. Maybe it's adding a little bit of extra cover to the tree around me. Maybe it's greasing the tree stand because I think it has to be just a little bit quieter. Or once I had an issue with the seat in November making noise, so I'm going to make sure to grease that now so that November it'll be good and quiet. You know, it's thinking through all that kind of stuff now so that when you actually go out there to hunt, you're not dealing with that crap. Let me Let me put it to you this way. Where I start off, let's say either a rut vacation or when I really start hitting it harder in late October, where I start off, and let's even even if it's a pre-hung tree stand, I very rarely am sitting in that stand when I have an encounter with a bigger, more mature deer or a deer from my hit list because I am constantly moving and tweaking throughout the entire season where these these tree stands that I'm going to be hanging this month are starting points and that's uh, most of the time that's all they are yeah and and hope you know in some cases you know they're starting points cuz you're you know like you said you're learning a new spot figuring it out and then adjusting or hopefully you are taking what was a starting point last year maybe and now moving it from last year to an end point this year by making the adjustment you had to, or maybe it's three years worth of adjustments. And now you're making the final step to get it to that perfect spot or the perfect tweak. Um, but yeah, this is that time of year to, you know, go through your list of stands. Like literally it's, this isn't a bad exercise to do Write down every one of your stand locations that you currently have up and think through like at least one way you can improve that set this right. month. And then think through, you know, maybe you've got a plan of three more stands you want to hang. And just go through and think about that stand location, all the variables you need to think about when you do hang that one as that new starting point. You know, I 
you got to be thinking about so many things when hanging a tree stand. It's not just, you know, at least when I first started hunting, it was like, okay, where are there going to be deer? Okay, I'm going to hang my tree there or hang my stand there. And that's like where most hunters just start. And then you start thinking, okay, you know, maybe I'm going to start thinking about wind. So how do I hang my tree stand in such a way that, you know, I'm not going to be winded? And then you realize, okay, it's not just that. Now I also need to be in a tree that I'm going to be hidden in, so I need enough cover. And then you get a little bit better, and you realize not only do I need cover, but I also still need to have shooting lanes. And then I need to be able to figure out how to get in and out of that tree stand. And now i got to think about how high in the tree i got to be. i got to be thinking about you know, having the right gear so I'm quiet in the tree. I mean, there's umpteen different little details that even go into this one small step of hunting. You know, getting the tree stand right. Right. And just to elaborate on what you just said, here is how I I play a game. It's not necessarily a game. I find a location, right, that I want to have a tree stand in, right? And I'll just put a a finger on the map or I'll put a, a mark right on this map. And I'll say, all right, this is a good spot. This is a good area. Now, A, how do I access it? All right. B, I've accessed it. And then you play the wind game and then you're like, okay, is that wind? A, can I act? Is that a good or bad access with that wind? Okay, it's good. Okay, now I can hunt it. Uh, okay, I'm in the stand. I have that wind. Can I hunt it on that, that wind? So if it matches up, yes, it's a green. It's a go. You know, I can hunt that during the season. All right, access on a different wind. Okay, wind, wind is bad, all right, for access. But if I get to the stand, um, you know, I may, I, I, it's a risk, you know, like we always talk about risk versus reward. Is that, is that access bad? If, and if it is, if I get to the stand and I don't bump anything, is that a green? That's the, I can hunt that wind on that stand or I can hunt that stand with that wind, even though it's going to be a bad access, but good while I'm in the stand. For me, that's kind of a, that depends on, that, you know, that kind of opens Pandora's box, but you have to go through every type of scenario with every stand. Okay. Yes or no. Can I hunt it in this wind? 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 That way, you know, when the season starts, you don't even have to think about it. You're just like, yes, this wind, I can hunt it. Nope. This wind, find a different place. Yeah. Oh yeah. I love, I love that. I've, I go through the same similar process when I'm in there trying to set new stands. And to your point, Again, this is a helpful thing. I've I've done this occasionally. It probably is something I should do again in the future. But again, like if you were to list out all your tree stands and maybe you did that exercise I just mentioned where you think of one thing you can do for each stand, you know, just have a chart like this and then label or list those things out. So, you know, write what wind directions is good for, write down, you know, I don't know, what time of year that stands best for, different things like that. So you don't even need to think about that. You know, on October 15th, you're like, well, where the heck should I hunt today? Southwest wind. Well, you can just look at your map and your list of stands, and you'll say, okay, stand A, D, and F are all good for southwest winds, and I know that stand F happens to be a good mid-October spot. Let's go there. Just kind of simplifies it because I don't know about you, but – Sometimes during the hunting season, I almost become paralyzed with analysis. Oh you know, boy! Par- you and me both. Paralysis by analysis, I think they say. Like yep. you're just you're, especially like you and me. You know, probably maybe all of our listeners, because right, we've listened to so many different people's ideas. We're we're students of the game. We're constantly learning, reading, studying our own experiences, studying other people's experiences. That when we go into a hunting situation, there's so many different 
ideas that could be implemented and so many different factors we're paying attention to. You know, it can be like crazy. So it can be stressful. And it's helped me occasionally to try to just like remove a little bit of that decision making stress by just having it kind of mapped out in some way. So like I don't need to sit and grill myself about it. I just know A and B are my two options. And that, that helps in the in a tiny way it helps. And, you know, at certain times of the year, every little bit can can really make a difference. That's a fact. Um, another thing when it comes to setting stands that I like to do is that, you know, I try to never set a stand unless there's at least three good reasons that I'm setting it there. This is kind of just a different way of looking at the same thing you said. But I don't want to just hang a stand just because there's a trail there or just because there's a scrape there or something. I want there at least to be like three really good reasons. I, I can't remember where I got this idea from. I think maybe Don Higgins wrote an article about this like five years or I read this some number of years ago, but it really stuck with me that there should be at least three really good reasons that you can list out for any stand spot or any location you're putting a stand. So let's say I'm hanging a stand and I'm like, okay, so why am I hanging the stand here? I better have three really good reasons. Maybe number one, because I've got two trails intersecting in front of me. There's reason number one. Reason number two, I'm hanging this stand here because it's at an inside corner of this field or whatever it might be. And then reason number three, maybe it would be because I've got this creek that runs through the property that I can walk all the way to the stand. So I've got great access and then it's two different factors that should be pulling deer into this area. Um, Always try to go through that. If, if you have less than three reasons in your favor for that tree stand, it's probably not good enough, at least not to kill a mature buck from. Um, you know, that's just a little exercise that I kind of go through to, to make sure that I'm not just setting something, you know, over easy sign or just because yep. I'm getting tired or lazy or just because, oh, this looks good. Um, you know, uh, Craig Doherty, he was a guest on this show, I don't know, some number of episodes, I think early, early in the show, early, uh, first 10 episodes or something. Um, and now I'm kind of getting off on a tangent, but I went on a hunt with him once, um, I don't know, four or five years ago. And we're sitting in this box blind, just talking about stuff. And we hadn't seen any deer that night, um, or very few. And it was like surprising because it was, I don't know, late October or something cold front. We should have been seeing deer and, um, we weren't. And, you know, so I, I would kind of say, well, that's hunting just kind of happen. That's just how it goes sometimes. And he made a comment along the lines of, well, no, you know, there's always a reason. And his kind of lesson to me was that you should always ask why. Like, there's always a reason for what you see or don't see or observe or don't observe. So when you're sitting in a tree stand, I think the reason why I got to this is because we were kind of talking about reasons for a tree stand. But I'm now <laughs> moving us to reasons for why deer what they do, deer do what they do. When you are hunting in a tree stand, let's say this fall, and you see a buck do something or you see some deer do something or whatever it is or you don't see deer one night, don't ever just take it at face value and just say, oh, that happened. Always ask why. Why did this happen? And I think if we're constantly asking why, we're going to learn stuff and that will help you apply to these tree stand adjustments or to this exit or access adjustments we need to make. Because you know, if you see a buck come out and he walks 50 yards away from you along a field row or field edge, why did he do that? Why wasn't he right here where I thought he was going to be? Why did he walk 50 yards away? Or when you see a group of does come out in such and such area or travel on that ridge line there, we need to be asking why they traveled there. Because if we can start understanding the answers to those questions every time we see something like that, 
all of a sudden we are uncovering the clues that we need to make the right adjustments now or during the season or whatever it is. So random tangent, Dan, sorry about that, but always ask why always. And that right there can also be applied to what some people call the October lull. Oh yeah, for sure. I know, I know we're getting off again, but (laughs) like everybody don't hunt the October lull. I'm hunting the October lull. I don't care. (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, we, and we've talked about it before. I mean, the October lull, it is a thing that many people experience, but it's not its not a natural thing that just happens, like, right. just happens. It, it is a reaction to things changing. And so if you have the ability and the knowledge to adjust to that change that the deer make, mm-hmm. you can be right in the game, right? Amen. Um, but... Some people don't have the spots to do it or the time to do it right or the knowledge of, you know, how to do that. And in those and that's cases, why they listen to the Wired to Hunt podcast with Mark Kenyon. And Dan Johnson. And Dan Johnson. Yeah. I'm, <laughs> I'm, a, I'm an afterthought, though. Well. You're the brains behind this. What does that make you, Dan? Um, I don't know. Like, <laughs> I, I would say the bronze, but it's not even that. I'm just like, I'm that sidekick who is like. Like just a little off, you know, it's chromosome. Like you may be missing a chromosome. <laughs> You're the type that eats dog food, that type. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> that guy, that guy. Well, I'm happy to have that guy as my co-host. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tree stands. Um, I did want to like elaborate a little bit on like, well, you know, we've talked about tree stands a lot. One, I'll just give one example of one of the adjustments I'm making. So, you know, we talked about your tweak you're making. One of the tweaks I'm making is one of the situations where I have a tree stand that's near a food plot that's right off the food plot. Um, I've hunted it many times in the past. It's a great spot. Um, I've almost gotten a shot at several bucks there, but never quite been able to get it done. So to what we've been talking about, what I have seen, though, is lots of times these bucks cross from a swamp over to this finger of timber in the CRP grass, they have to cross a thin finger of crop field. And when that crop field is cut, either corn or beans, when it's cut down, they always cross this field at this low spot. You know, we've talked about this before, low spots in fields. Lots of times if deer are going to cross a field out in the open, they're going to cross it in that low spot. And that's exactly what's happened here. Um, And I've seen deer do it numerous times. Leaner, the buck we were talking about a while ago, he passed by me like 60 yards away from me crossed this low spot instead of coming to the food plot he crossed the field behind me in the low spot came across stayed in the timber and the crp um and for a number of years i've like kept saying ah, i gotta i gotta i gotta sit there but it's you know like 60 yards away from my current stand near the food plot and it's always like just i don't know the the one risk of having a food plot is that it's always kind of like enticing to sit on it or close yeah. to it because you see so many deer and you always think that you're gonna have that action there but this is one of those cases where i just have to make i know it's the right thing to do and i've just been being stubborn about it i need to have a stand there at this low spot that yeah i'm not gonna be able to hunt the food plot edge but that's fine because lots of times the bucks are cruising downwind of the food plot not actually coming to it staying in that low spot going past it kind of checking it out and then continuing on to various other spots so that's an example of i've you know observations have shown me this is a spot to be 
And then number two, they're signed consistently through there every year from, you know, the occasional mature buck that cruises through there. And then also it's a terrain funnel. So it's one of those things that, you know, if you look at your maps, you notice it too. But between the maps and now, you know, observing it a handful of years, that's somewhere that, yeah, I'm going to feel silly because I have three tree stands in like a 120-yard section along this finger of timber. But each one has a different time of year that I should be hunting it or a different situation. Um, so micromanaging those little things like that it can be it can be the difference maker i agree so that's what we're doing when it comes to tree stands any um let's talk a little bit about how we're setting them or any i think we've talked a little bit about this in the past but anything you've found that you've really started doing recently that you like when it comes to where you're hanging your stands you know in the tree or the gear you're using uh any technique as you know i think we may have talked about facing the tree stand towards where the deer come or w- towards away from where they're coming. We talked about that. Right, right. So one of my favorite things to do, and I, I did this because I was self, I used to self film a lot and, uh, and I don't do that as much anymore. So I always had in order to get away with a little bit more movement and it's easier with a camera arm in the tree. I had my back to where the main, where I thought the deer were going to be coming. All right. So that way I can stand up. And then if it's a shooter, I just basically point my, you know, my camera hit record. And if it's not, then I can follow that deer in, follow them out, you know, and, uh, just be comfortable because there's an object between me and the, the deer. And if they do kind of catch movement, they see this big tree up in front of them. And then they're more likely from what I've seen to, uh, you know, take a look at it, then ignore it. So the, so I've kept doing that and I've, I feel more comfortable. I can get away with more movement. The deer are less likely to, you know, if I do make too much movement or for God forbid my tree stand squeaks or I don't know something and they catch me, then I can, you know, then I'm more likely to get away with it because there's a giant object in between us. Yeah. I'm starting to do that more and more too. Right. I think it's a I think it's a great idea. You know, if if you can manage it with, you know, limbs and other things like that, you know, as long as you can get a shot off, as long as you're set up for that. I mean, like you said, it's a great way to get that additional cover and to kind of help you in that situation. Um, you know, two years ago, the jawbreaker year, yep. Both of my tree stands were set up like that. That I got a shot at jawbreaker, that was I was behind the tree. And yep. then the buck that I killed, you know, two weeks later same deal i set that stand purposely up facing away from where the deer would be because it was a skinny tree and have a lot of cover so i was kind of banking on the trunk helping me out and good thing i did that because even being behind the tree that buck still kind of latched onto me moving and you know like we've talked about i had like a two minute stare down with him i can't believe that if i was in broad sight right out in front of the tree he would have let me get away with that right now the only problem with that is you're going to be doing a lot more standing because you're going to want to, you know, have your eyes and where the deer are going to be coming from. Um, at least that's what I do. I, I, I very rarely sit down in, in my stand except for, you know, a, a morning hunt where I'm, you know, I can't shoot because it's dark. Yeah. Uh, I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll take little breaks, but I'm, I like to stand. Yeah. Interesting. You bring that up. Um, so I was at Sitka's headquarters last week, you know, recording and, um, I was chatting with one of their product managers and he was telling me that he brings a little sheet of closed cell foam. 
Um, now he, I don't know, this was some special foam that he had from, you know, some type of, that he was using in some product that he had. But you could get like, you know, like a little foam sleeping pad. Like it's like a half inch thick type foam that you can get, you know, for camping or whatever. He brings this little pad of foam, you know, 18 by 18 or whatever with him every time he goes into a tree stand and he lays that out on the ground of the tree stand. And A, what that does for him is it quiets his boots moving on the metal platform of the tree stand almost completely. So there's no more, you know, clicking against the grates or, you know, dirt falling and making noise or squeaking or anything. B, it also gives him a lot of added warmth. A lot of heat gets lost through your feet on that metal platform coming up. So, you know, like if you're sleeping on the regular ground, it's a lot colder than if you sleep on a foam pad. So by putting a very thin foam pad on the top of his tree stand platform, it also really helps him stand stand longer on those cold late season days. Um, so I thought that's kind of an interesting little thing. That and then, is very interesting. And then finally, it actually, even though it doesn't seem like a lot of cushioning, he says it really helps with standing all day during the, all, during the rut and stuff because he does all day sits but he stands most of the day too like you just mentioned so he said this is something that really helps him so i was like that's kind of a nice little tip there right and i'm i'm getting to the point now where you know i used to be die hard you know lone wolf everything but there's but i'm realizing now that there are tree stands out there that are really comfortable like, you know, like the millenniums and, yeah. uh, I think Hawk has some, you know, it's almost like it's a recliner up in the tree, but you know, you're not going to do your running guns with it, but you can put it into uh, a rut spot. And I, I sat in a couple of these at some of the ATA shows this year and I'm just like, don't get me wrong. Lone wolf can be comfortable, but you're, you're, you know, you're tight in there. Yeah. Some of these other stands are like luxury yeah like like i could easily fall asleep (laughs) yeah i would never accuse lone wolf stands of being like the most comfortable they're they're they're, you know acceptable um but you know i use those stands in certain situations because they're super light super quiet i mean they're awesome for running gun sets but yeah i mean there's lots of other options when you're looking for something you're gonna hang up now and leave it and you want something comfy um I'm just cheap. <laughs> yeah. So like me, yeah. I, I buy dozens of the $40 tree stands and then I've got two lone wolves that I, you know, splurged on that I take for my running guns. Um, but you know, even the cheapos, you can occasionally find a, a diamond in the rough comfort right. zone, man. The $40, <laughs> the $40, I have no affiliation with them whatsoever. <laughs> But the $40 comfort zone is the best bargain tree stand you can get there. You know, it's not a great tree stand. It's 40 bucks, but it's the best $40 one out there by far. Now, how old is your oldest comfort zone? I think I'm going on my third year. And are they still quality enough to hunt out of them? Yeah, absolutely. Have, have you had to hunt, like replace any straps? I have not had one issue yet. Oh my gosh. So again, I mean it's nothing fancy, but it's right. it for, when you look at that like bargain tree stand market, right. you know, this the options available there. This has by far the best cushion seat. Um it's like everything is what do you call it? Like powder coated metal, so it's a yep. little bit quieter. Um everything's tight. It you know, some of these forty dollar stands you get like Dunham Sports or some of these like bargain places, whatever it might be, your you know, tractor supply or whatever. Everything's loose and clanky and dingy and heavy this is like just the antipathy of all that it is 
Ah, uh, I mean, look at me. I'm gushing. <laughs> 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 These guys really should really should um, get on board with the Wired Hunt podcast. <laughs> what were you going to say? I, oh, I was just singing a T-Pain song. Oh. <laughs> yeah, man. They're, for, I don't know. Find whatever works for you, but... For putting, if you're gonna put a lot of stands in the woods, and you know, for me, I'm 28 years old. I don't have all sorts of money. I have to spend it carefully. I I've gone the route of lots of cheap stands, and then a couple high quality ones that I can take on these, you know, mobile setups, and that's worked well for me. But I know some guys, you know, would not want to sit in a small tree stand like that, especially during the rut for long long periods of time. Um, I mean, I definitely have more of a tolerance for pain and discomfort, I guess, maybe than some people. So, I mean, they're small, um, but they're not too bad. So, perfect. So, tree stands. We talked about how to place them, shooting lanes. You know, this is a great time of year to be going through and, you know, checking all your tree stands and checking their shooting lanes. I like to, you know, I think we've talked about this before too. We've probably talked about everything here at some point over the past 113 episodes, but we're trying to cover it all in one place here. Um, one thought I have on, um, well, hell, I don't even know what my thought was now, Dan. <laughs> shooting lanes. What the heck were we going to talk about shooting lanes? Uh, the more you cut, the more it exposes you. Well, you tell me your thoughts on shooting lanes, and there's there's something, a different thought on shooting lanes I was going to share that I've completely blanked on. But, oh, you know what I was going to say. This is what I was going to say. I was going to say that if you are doing a lot of this kind of work early in the year, you know, if you're the guy or girl that in the spring, you're, if you're way ahead of the game and you're good and you got your stands out in May or June, you still probably want to go in late August or even early September or whatever it might be for you to just double check them because lots of times there's that summer growth that all of a sudden comes into those shooting lanes. So I've had a lot of situations where I went in May, cleared everything out, didn't think about it again until I hunted in October, and then showed up and had a bunch of new crap right in the way of where I cut that then, you know, made the whole work I did in May irrelevant. So make sure yep. you check everything late in the summer. Yep. Yep. And, you know, there's those guys out there who they cut landing strips, basically. You know, they everything in this giant rectangle, when they say shooting lane, it's like a bowling alley. You know, they cut everything. And then you got the guys who I'm kind of I'm kind of more like this second group where you're cutting pockets and you you find an opening where the deer are going to go and you, you know, you just cut a, a cut as little as you possibly have to. Yeah. So you, you're more in that camp. Yep. Except for, except, well, I, I shouldn't say except because there are times when I go into an area where it is just thick and nasty and you have to do major trimming. Yeah. You know, your, your tree is a really thick and nasty tree and then you have to cut, major lanes you know to even just hit the ground floor yeah so yeah that there definitely is that divide some people go one way some go the other i actually have been going a little more in the opposite direction um i you know of course i want to have good cover but if i can keep good cover in my stand i will open up lanes as best as i can uh, with trying to keep that cover as still as good as i can right around me because I've had too many situations relatively recently where because there was one limb in the way, it forced me to rush a shot or because or it kept me from getting a shot or it, you know, just made this thing a whole lot more difficult than it should have been. So now I'm like, there's one limb in this one way 
and I'll sit there and look at it and be like, this is going to be a pain in the butt to cut that one more thing. But I know that if a buck stands behind that limb and I can't get a shot because I was lazy, I'm going to be kicking myself for years. So I always try to get that one extra limb or whatever it might be to make sure you've got good good available lanes and stuff, but not at the expense of opening yourself up. Um, but I don't know. It's really six one way, half dozen the other. I, I just hate being a situation where there's a deer moving through your lane or something and you don't have time to range him, stop him, get a shot, or you have to make a noise to stop him and then he spooks or he jumps the string or there's so many things that can go wrong when you've got a very narrow window to get a shot. Um, it just raises a lot more issues. How long do you think a podcast would be if we talked about absolutely everything that like from food plots to, you know, shooting lanes to equipment to making sure, you know, strategy, all that stuff. How 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 many hours do you think that would uh that conversation would be? Well, we're going to find out today because that's the plan. We're going to keep going. <laughs> <laughs> we are not stopping, ladies and gentlemen. Yep. We're going 6, 7, 8 hours, whatever it's going to be. <laughs> My wife is going to be happy with me. Oh, yeah, and me. She pro- How much does she hate me, Dan? I feel like I'm always a bad influence on you. Oh, no, your wife, my wife, my wife doesn't hate you. She, she, it's like a grandma, right? Where she's just like. <laughs> Did you just compare your wife to your grandma? Well, in, in this one, in this one instance where it's like, <laughs> I'm not mad at you. I'm just disappointed. Oh, <laughs> you yeah. know, one of those things. That's even worse. Right, right. So, you know, it's like, oh, man, because like right now I hear my kids screaming upstairs. I, I do, too. <laughs> <laughs> and I know. And, oh, by the way, my wife quit her job to, to be a stay at home daycare provider. Right. So oh, wow. she has three other kids that aren't mine, at least I hope. And, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and she and she's watching them right now. Right. So. She's taken on more kids. So that tells me she's not a, you know, she's not uh, as mad at me as I previously thought. I guess that's good then. That's right. That's, that's right. Good to know. Do we have time to continue? Yeah, we do. I mean, it, she's she's on the clock, not me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so we've talked a little bit about trail cameras. We've talked a little about tree stands, shooting lanes. What else are you doing at this time of year? Uh, towards the end of this month, and I, I'm, we mentioned it briefly, is the trail camera transition. And that comes off of the mineral stations that I have my uh, trail cameras on now. And that gets a little bit closer to the bedding areas, closer to my tree stand locations. And I'm trying to do that efficiently. So when I'm going in to hang my tree stands, I'll set these cameras up in these pinch points, in these fence crossings, uh, where I feel these deer are bedding. Um, coming in and out and uh, that way I'm not going to check them until I actually hunt that hunt those stands right yeah so and then find you know there even with some of these uh, trail camera switches you might need an access route to this trail camera that is not the same access route that is for the you know that is for the uh, the tree stand yeah yeah no I think um that shift that happens right at the end of summer is one of the like most frustrating things for a lot of people, I think, because a lot of guys and girls, right, we get out in the summer, we have our cameras out, we're looking at farm fields and seeing the bucks and everything, and then 
September 8th comes along or 15th, and all of a sudden these deer are gone. Right. And they're not doing anything that they used to be doing. The bucks we were watching don't show up anymore. Or maybe you hung your stands based on where you saw bucks moving You know, in July. They're always on this trail camera every day during daylight. And then you sit there October 1st and you don't see anything for the next week. Um, like, if you aren't paying attention and aware of the shift that happens that first week of September, you're missing out on a major, major behavior change in whitetails yep. that um, is going to really hurt you as a hunter. So, you know, to what you just said, Dan, for those who aren't familiar with this shift, you know, when, um, when bucks are losing their velvet that first week in September, give, usually, give or take, there's going to be a few changes that happen at that time of year. Um, as deer transition to their kind of fall range, you're going to have a lot of deer relocate from where they've yep. been living in the summer to a new fall range. Um, that might be a shift of, you know, 20 acres. It could be a shift of a mile or more. Um, so, you know, each buck has a different personality, different ranges and stuff. Uh, but kind of, I don't know what you've seen, Dan, but I'd say maybe on average 40% of, maybe 40 to 50% of the bucks that I might have on a property in the summer will substantially change their behavior by the time the fall rolls around. So usually, let's say I've got four bucks on camera in the summer maybe, there's a good bet that maybe half of them will still be around during the hunting season. The other two or whatever it is in that case, um, they might be gone. Right. Um, have you seen something kind of similar to that? Almost to a T, you know, that late August period, early September, velvet comes off. That testosterone is starting to build in their body, and the bachelor groups start to break up. And the deer that, you know, and the, the reason I'm doing this transition is because there's no point. They, they don't need the mineral anymore. Uh, at least that's what I've seen. You know, they, they stop coming to the mineral stations. They, the, the luscious greens that are in there have started to dry up and are less appetizing for them. The corn field or the bean fields, you know, the beans are starting to dry out. So they're not hitting the bean fields as much anymore. The corn, you know, is kind of a last, you know, the reason they love it in the late season is because it's the only thing they have to eat in some instances, you know, it's easy for them to get. So then they transition to what's in the woods, anything that's still green or the acorns, right? So, so that transition can keep those deer 100% away from where they have been the previous three months. And now some people think, oh, they're gone. Well, yes, according to your trail cameras, they're gone. So you have to be smart and move your trail, you, you know, your trail cameras, or just realize that once the rut comes around, these, some of these areas still might be good, but they're not, you know, a bachelor group of bucks is not going to come through in November. Right. Right. And I think it's, you know, in order to keep getting pictures of bucks or to relocate those bucks, you need to, like you said, move those cameras, but then also, you know, so your trail cameras need to change, but then also your tree stand strategy needs to be different in that. Well, it shouldn't even be it different. Sh exactly. It shouldn't be different right. because you right. don't do not set your tree stands based on what you're seeing in July or August. Just don't exactly. do it. Exactly. The only way it might work is if you've got a really early opener, if you're opening in early September, you know, and some of those bucks might still be on, many of those bucks will still be on that usual summer bed to feed pattern that time of year, then you can go ahead and do that. But if you're like me in Michigan and we don't open till October 1st, 
if I were setting my stands and trying to hunt based on summer observations, I'd be having a lot of boring nights on, on the I, tree yeah, stand. Yeah, I would never see a deer. Yeah. <laughs> so that's an important thing to keep in mind this year. Yes, we're setting stands, but you should be setting your stands now based on last year's observations, based on topo maps and aerial maps, you know, looking at the terrain, anticipating what the deer are going to do in October and November. Um, you know, looking at where the food sources are going to be in October and November, looking at what the quality bedding cover is going to be at those times of year. Um, you know, don't get too sucked into trying to, you know, set up based on the sign you're seeing in July or where you saw a buck in on October 15th or sorry, August 15th. Um, that's a really important thing to make sure you keep in mind as you're doing this prep work this summer. That's right. Uh, another thought on the trail camera, when I do that shift for me, like, I, you know, lots of times I've got my summer cameras out by food, summer food sources. Um, something I've really come to love is putting my cameras on scrapes during the shift period. So in like the last time I go into my property, so late August or early September, or if, you know, if it's one of these out of state places and I, you know, go once in the early season, this will be the very beginning of October or whatever. Whenever I get that chance, I'm going to go in there and set some cameras on scrapes or mock scrapes, even, you know, September, or October, when they're not typically, you don't think of bucks hitting scrapes a lot. They really do visit these scrapes a lot more than we think, at least during the nighttime. And when I'm trying to get inventory of bucks or figure out, okay, where did this buck relocate to in September or October? I just have had like the best success in the world of getting lots and lots of pictures on scrapes. Um, Especially if you can't use any kind of attractant or bait, you know, if you're trying to take inventory of bucks, it's really helpful to throw some corn or mineral down. But if you can't do that in your state, even during the summer, scrape locations can be one of the best places to still get an inventory because they still check and smell those licking branches. They're not necessarily, they're not scraping up the ground underneath it, but they still are rubbing their glands up on those licking branches or sniffing them or licking them. Um, Bucks, does the whole gamut. Um, I've just seen it year after year, even in the summer, they're doing it. So it's it's a great place to place your cameras, as long as you've got a camera that's not spooking those deer at the scrapes. Um, I think it was Eric Long maybe we talked to last year who talked about some kind of kind of uh, studies he was doing personally, checking how deer were reacting to scrape cameras. Um, I think he said he was noticing some deer were negatively reacting to it, but I've talked to other people who haven't seen that that same reaction. I think it comes down to what kind of camera you're using, how edgy your deer are, how you're placing your camera there. I'm trying to start placing my cameras higher up in the tree, so not so much at deer eye level as much, um, a little higher and angling them down. I'm hoping that'll you know make them a little less noticeable to deer. Um, and then, of course, making sure you're not checking them too often. You know, Like you mentioned, having good access routes to your cameras when you check them. Even in the summer, that kind of stuff matters. I, I never hang a trail camera on a tree that is right in front of a scrape. It's off. It's always off of it. You, yeah, yeah, yes. But you're pointing at a scrape, but you're saying it's not yeah. the scrape tree. It's not. Yeah. I mean, you know, when you think of a scrape, you think of a, a branch hanging right down on the ground and you think of the tree that's about, you know, five, ten feet away from it. And it, it's almost like it's in view of the deer. Right. Because yeah. the, the deer, they're focused on that scrape. So if they look their head up and look look around, you don't want that camera to be in their focus range. Yeah, you you definitely want to try to make it as concealed as possible, um, especially if you've got like a flash camera or different things like that. But I think it also, 
I've talked to some people and seen some examples where they just don't care. Like you, I've had I've had some cameras sometimes on a scrape, and I've had three and four year old bucks show up over and over and over again, and they just don't care about it. While you go to other places, and the first time a buck gets a picture on that camera, you see his eyes wide as a you know, bowling ball, and he never shows up ever again. <laughs> so you do have to kind of get a gauge on how your deer react to that. I don't know if you keep you know. I wonder sometimes, like, do these deer just get used to these cameras being on all the time? Like, on yeah. this Michigan property, these deer are, you know, very heavily hunted. They're very human hunting pressure shy. But, I mean, I've got cameras out all the time, and I have not had these you know, terribly concealed or really high up in the tree. They've been, you know, kind of at deer eye level, sometimes just on, like, a stick-and-pick type thing right in the edge of a field. And I get daylight pictures of mature bucks looking at it or walking past it like repeatedly year after year and i don't know i wonder if like sometimes these deer just kind of become used to it in some to some degree and and maybe that's partly because i'm you know really careful about trying not to associate humans with that you know i'm really careful about when to check them and all that kind of stuff so i don't know i think everyone has to kind of figure that out for themselves and their situation but it's definitely something to be thinking about right i agree Shooting lanes. We've talked about trail cameras, food plots. Do you do any access or exit work before the season at this time of year? You know, are you talking about like cleaning a trail to get to like removing all the leaves off of the the forest floor to get to uh, a tree stand extremely quiet? That kind of stuff? That kind of stuff, yeah. yeah no, I don't do any of that stuff. Why not? Uh, to be honest with you, it's going to sound like a dumb excuse, but you know, like I mentioned, every time in the woods has to be efficient as possible. And my opinion is that that kind of work is lower on the totem pole for stuff that needs to get done. And I've never really had me being, you know, walking to a tree stand, you know, leaves crunching below my boots, you know, as you know, a huge red flag where, Hey, I need to, I need to make a sidewalk, a cushioned sidewalk to my tree stand. That way I'm not getting busted. I guess just not something I'm, I'm, I'm doing currently. Interesting. Um, I, I, I've not done it all the time, but I definitely have every year tried to think about little ways to improve those routes in and out sometimes because I, at least I certainly have had times when like I was trying to walk to a stand in the afternoon and I had to go through thick brush or I was on tons of leaves and crunching sticks and like every step is painful and like I'm hating my life every step because I just know I'm alerting deer around me or if you've got a stand that like to get to it you have to go somewhat near a bedding area or you have to right. do this or that and you just you have to find stealthy ways to get in and out. And if, if you can't get to a stand without alerting deer, what the, what's the point of hunting that stand? Um, so right. I've been trying, there are certain sta- examples where I've been trying to improve those routes. Um, you know, so for example, there's this, this property I hunt where in the, in certain times of the day, I can walk a field edge at certain times of the day. I need to walk on the other side of this row of timber through this brush 
so that um, if deer are feeding on that field, you know, early in the morning or late in the evening, I obviously don't want to walk through that field and spook them. So the first year or two I hunted, that was the only way I could get in and out because the brush was so thick on the other side. So I was just walking this field edge and spooking deer. And I, I knew it was stupid, but I didn't have any other way. But then I decided, okay, I'm going to clear a trail through the brush. So I did that one summer. And that has like made an absolute world of difference, like night and day when it comes to daylight sightings of mature deer and just deer in general, because I can get in and out now without a making a ton of noise or you know just getting lost in like head high brush and brambles and crap like that. You know, I went through there once. Now every year I just kind of maintain that in the summer, and I can get in quietly. I can get in and out with spooking deer, um, and it wasn't that much work. But you know, of course, it was it was a you know an investment of time, but now I've been able to, you know, easily maintain that in the yeah. years to come. Or I found different spots where if I just clear out, you know, like sometimes there's like a fence row and you want to be on one side or the other or something, I'll just try to clear out a little path to get in, you know, across the fence row quietly. So you're not climbing over trees and making a bunch of junk, just little tweaks like that. Right. I think are the things I've been trying to do more often now, just, just planning out that route ahead of time a little bit in my head. So I know, okay, I can get there as efficiently as possible or, effectively and that maybe this is the route I have to go to not alert deer but sometimes it's cutting one tree limb or it's yeah, I've never been to the type that's actually raked out trails I haven't gone that far right. but um I've definitely found it valuable to try to do some work um right. that you know again it does there is like some hierarchy of importance of all these things so if you right. you know if you only have a day you can only get a b and c done of course e and f could be helpful, but you don't have time to do it. But if you can. I, yeah. I guess there is a couple instances where I've had to trim some, you know, some of those branches. So, A, instead of having to touch the branch with my hand and push it up so it doesn't hit me or my pack or my bow, I've, I've snapped those or broken those, you know, cut those off um, just so I'm not, A, touching anything or B, you know, you know, stuff's banging against me, twigs are, you know, catching my gear, um, on the way to the stand. Um, never anything, you know, as far as making a trail is concerned, but, uh, I guess I've, I've cut some branches, so I'm not having to, you know, crawl to my tree stand, if that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I've, I've never done like the raking leaves thing because I always thought, well, what's the point of raking leaves in August when I'm going to come back in October and there's gonna be all these new leaves on top right. of that. Um, right. But I know some guys who go in, even during the season, on, like, rainy days and will rake their trails. And I'm, like, I'm torn because I, I hate the idea of going into the property ever to, you know, potentially spook deer. But, I you know, I also I love those days when I do have, like, a trail that happens to be cleared and I can just perfectly silently walk into my tree. Like, that is the best feeling. I love a perfectly silent I know I didn't spook any deer entry. I don't know about you, but I, I'm <laughs> I have this really crazy obsession with entering and exiting tree stands. Like my stress level is as high as it gets maybe while I hunt. <laughs> when I'm going in and out, like I am so paranoid about spooking deer and when I do spook a deer, like I just I'm sitting there just cussing and I'm so mad at myself. I'm like, God dang it. Um so <laughs> I, I just I hate crappy at entry routes and I love the really quiet ones so I'm trying to get a little better every year at prov making more of those really good quiet ones because um, it just makes me a happier hunter I guess when it comes right. to October and November there's there's nothing that pisses you off more when you're you know you're tiptoeing through the timber 
and you know you get to your base of your tree or something like that and then you hear a <laughs> you know that the, the does blow and and uh kind of potentially ruin ruin things so oh, my heart just sinks yeah especially in michigan like i'm right. less concerned in like ohio or iowa these other states but at least here in my home state, I know I usually have one chance at one of these bucks. Like, literally, I have one chance to make a mistake is what I'm saying. So if I do one thing wrong, like if I spook them once, that's usually my only chance to spook that deer that I'll have to see them in daylight. Um, once these bucks here, at least on my prop- my main property too, if I have one bad encounter, they smell me once. Usually, I, I never see get daylight pictures of them. I never see them again. So I'm like, every time I go in or out. I'm just on pins and needles, like thinking I need to do every single thing right. Um, right. right. And gosh, to, to blow it when you're walking to your tree stand, that's that's a bummer. Yeah. <sighs> but you got to do it, right? You got to right. go in and out. And sometimes now I'm starting to get gonna... fired up. I'm, I'm really fired up. I have like, right. I, you know, I've been out in Montana and Idaho the last couple months and been doing all sorts of other stuff, but I have got like a wicked case of summertime buck fever right now um like last night i got home and i've got my binoculars on the back window and i can overlook this bean field behind my house and we're watching a movie my wife and i but like every 15 minutes i'm leaning over her trying to look out the window trying to see if there's anything out there (laughs) yeah well i got a little visitor who just came into the room we heard that yeah ava come here come here she should say hi yeah Hey, come here. I know you got a mouthful of cookies, but say, say hi, Mark. Hi, Mark. Hi, say, Ava. How are you? How, how, uh, he says, how are you? How are you? <laughs> <laughs> say, hey, is, is your daddy going to kill a big buck this year? Is your daddy going to kill <laughs> Well, you don't have to repeat me. I'm asking you. I'm asking you. Is daddy, is daddy going to kill a big buck this year? Um, yeah. Is yeah. Mark going to kill a big buck this year? No. Oh, <laughs> that wasn't even planned. Oh man, I'm doomed. <laughs> on a daily basis. That is awesome. <laughs> Sorry, I, ho- I I really hope she's wrong. I really do too. Anyway. Yeah. yeah, I know. Hey, well, we gotta we gotta wrap this uh, episode up, baby. <laughs> this might be a good. This might be it because. <laughs> Because now she's going to start crying. Hey, say, say, stay wired to hunt. Say, stay wired to hunt. Um, I don't know. No, say, stay wired to hunt. Stay wired to hunt. (laughs) Very good. (laughs) I'm sorry, Mark. That's okay. Do you really, do you have to go? I really got to go now. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, we'll, uh, we'll continue this next time then. Well, uh, folks, I guess that is going to do it for us today. Sorry for the unexpected ending, but you know that's how it goes sometimes. We'll likely have more on these topics as we continue on through these final weeks before the season, so be sure to check back in for that too. Now, a few quick reminders before we do shut it down. If you haven't yet, we'd be really appreciative if you could leave us a rating or review for this podcast on iTunes uh, or wherever it is you listen to your podcast. A rating or review there can really help us, and we appreciate that. Secondly, if you're enjoying this podcast and would like to show even more support, 
A great way to do that is to email or message one of the companies that support this podcast and let them know that you appreciate the show and their support of it. You know, little things like that can go a long way, and we really appreciate it. So we also want to thank those companies ourselves. So big thank you to Sitka Gear, Trophy Ridge, Bear Archery, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Ozonics, Carbon Express, Maven Optics, and the Whitetail Institute of North America. And finally, thank you all for tuning in today. I hope you enjoyed it. Hope it's inspired you to get out and finish that summer prep. And of course, as Dan's daughter said so well, stay wired to hunt. Hey, everybody knows Weber grills. I've been using Weber grills my whole life and check it out. They got a pellet grill, the Weber Searwood pellet grill. Now with a pellet grill, you can smoke, roast, and sear on the same grill. You can go from low and slow, okay, on smoke boost mode, or crank this thing all the way to a heat sear at 600 degrees. It's got a full great sear zone, so you can put more food on the flame. Get fired up for your new Weber Searwood pellet grill. I'm sure a lot of you guys remember the old ceremonial hunting tradition of eating the heart out of the first animal you kill. Meat from those organs are among the most nutrient-rich foods on the planet. You can get those same benefits your ancestors craved via convenient daily capsules from Heart and Soil. Find out more at heartandsoil.co. And remember, use code MEATEATER for 10% off your purchase.